from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah. Hello, 老师你好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉欣。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December first. Today, the plot to kill Iran's top nuclear scientist, QAnon's global reach, and suffering with COVID for the long haul. Last Friday, shortly after noon, in, a, in an area east of Tehran in Iran, we began to get reports of an attack. And very quickly, it emerged that a very well-known name, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. The father of the Iranian nuclear program had been killed. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for the Post. It wasn't long on Friday. In fact, it was within an hour or two of the first reports coming out of Iran that people began to say this really looks like an Israeli intelligence operation, and it did have the hallmarks of previous. Killings that they have carried out, even some on Iranian soil. Now Israel had absolutely no interest in commenting one way or the other on that. But I would say that in the international community, it's almost become an assumption that this was an Israeli operation. So this was Iran's chief nuclear scientist, and the way that I've heard people describe it. If you think about the Manhattan Project in the U.S., that this would have been the equivalent to the person who was the head of the Manhattan Project in Iran. But my question is, how important was this person to this nuclear weapons program that has now been disbanded, and how significant is it that he is now dead? Well, he's certainly not the only nuclear physicist in Iran. This is a country with a, a lot of educational attainment. They have quite a number of very well trained and very experienced. Scientists, both in physics and engineering, the kind they would need to carry out their supposed nuclear ambitions. But he is the father of the program. He has been at the top of it for a great number of years. He was credited with being not just a technical brain of the operation, but really a motivational force. Certainly, Israel thought he was an incredibly important target in 2018. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went up on a stage in a public way to describe some Israeli intelligence, and in the course of that briefing, Netanyahu flashed、uh, Fakhrizadeh's photograph and said, "A key part of the plan was to form new organizations to continue the work. This is how Dr. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, head of Project Ahmad, put it. Remember that name, Fakhrizadeh." And pretty much saying he's a wanted figure for Israel. We consider him at the top of the program that represents the greatest threat to our security. And the fact that he's been killed does that make it more difficult logistically for Iran to potentially create nuclear weapons, or is this more of a symbolic thing? I think that's a little bit difficult to say. It is certainly a major symbolic blow. He was very important. To them, he was well guarded. It is an embarrassment that he was killed. It's、um, probably a huge morale bust in the departments that he led. But 
This wasn't the Manhattan Project in the sense that the technology has to be invented. They have the understanding. There is a brain trust. He wasn't the only one. They have very increasingly sophisticated centrifuges. I don't think that anyone believes that the program stops with this person's death. But it is definitely a blow that Israel wanted to deliver if, in fact, it's confirmed that Israel carried out this attack. It's a blow they wanted to deliver because they thought it would at least have a material effect on the progress of the program or the willingness of Iranians to carry it out. So it seems like there is an obvious question here, which is, why would Israel do this? And it seems like an obvious answer could be, well, Israel doesn't want Iran to have nuclear weapons, and potentially this could make it more difficult for Iran to have nuclear weapons. But it seems like there are also other theories on what the motivation could be for this assassination. Can you talk through some of those theories? Well, I think you're right, Martine, to say that it, 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 it definitely has to do with Iran's nuclear program, which Israel uh, and Netanyahu in particular, they've been banging a drum for a number of years that that is the number one threat, an existential threat to the existence of Israel. And uh, they have fought in every possible forum to bring the international community along to that way of thinking. So yes, whatever the specific timing or the motivations was, the overall goal is to damage, delay, or stop that program. Now, this occurs at a sort of extremely complicated set of conditions in a region that's always complicated. Mm. We've got the end of the Trump era, Uh, the beginning of the Biden administration coming up in just uh, a few weeks. There have been a lot of reports that Israel has pressured the Trump administration to make some kind of final, hopefully decisive military strike against Iran's nuclear capability. Uh, That would probably mean missiles and bunker-busting bombs on these facilities where Iran is enriching uranium. we don't know whether there's interest in that in the in the Trump White House. Uh, we don't know for sure whether that's the motivation, uh, you know, of Israel right now, perhaps driving the decision to carry out this assassination to create the conditions where perhaps Iran would retaliate with a military strike of some kind against Israel, and therefore, following on, the U.S. would carry out that that attack on Iran's capabilities. Oh, interesting. So, so, so just to, to play out that theory, the thought there is that, well, if if Iran responds to this by, by doing some type of violent attack, that this will basically put the U.S. and the Trump administration in its waning days in a position where they have to respond and do something even more aggressive, and that will basically get Israel what it wants in this like closing window of an administration that is very hawkish toward Iran. That's right. That's right. And there has been reporting that uh, President Trump a few weeks ago, sometime after the election, did query his Pentagon chiefs and 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 ask about the the possibility and the effectiveness and the possible impact of just such an attack. And So if there are conditions where there's a bit of a shooting war emerging in the region that could create the cover for an attack that is really not about retaliation, but is all about taking out that infrastructure of nuclear research. Hmm. 
So, so that's one theory. What is another theory for why Israel may have launched this attack? Well, it, it may just be that the opportunity presented itself. Uh, as I said before, we, we do know that this particular science was 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 sort of enemy number one, uh, very much a wanted figure. The kind of attack that we saw on Friday, even though many of the specifics are unknown, was not the kind of thing that was quickly put together. It's unlikely that that could have been engineered and carried out just in the last few weeks since the election. Hmm. It is in some ways more likely that this is something that's been in the works for some time. The opportunity to, to execute it came up and then Benjamin Netanyahu, if, if it was indeed an Israeli operation, would have been the one who would have had to have made a decision whether this was a good time or a bad time to carry out such a provocative action. And I have talked to plenty of Israelis who said it wasn't that he wanted to start a war, but he was willing to authorize this killing in the hopes that he could do it with, without creating an escalation. And there is reason for him to think that's probably true. Iran, Israel has carried out assassinations of other scientists on its soil. So far, the leadership in Iran has not chosen to respond with major military attacks. So, so there's a sense that Israel can, like, get away with it, basically. That's one theory, that they could take out a scientist they wanted removed and not create cascading situation. Well, I also want to talk about what kind of problem this poses for President-elect Joe Biden going forward, that there is a sense that, of course, the U.S. has walked away from the Iran nuclear deal, that Joe Biden wants to return to a point of, of making another deal or striking more negotiations with Iran and basically have some kind of diplomatic reset in the U.S.'s relationship with Iran. And so I'm wondering how this assassination will make that more complicated. I've talked to plenty of, of Tehran watchers who say that one reason we probably will not see a major response in between now and January 20th, Inauguration Day, is that the, the Iranian leaders want to see what Biden is going to bring to the table. Um, I don't think they know yet. I know it's true that the Israelis are already missing the Trump administration in this particular arena. Donald Trump very much fell into step with Netanyahu's thinking on Iran. He pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. He's imposed very stringent sanctions. And he has, you know, seemed to be willing even to take this next military step. None of that do they expect to continue under Biden, who has said that he wants to offer Iran a quote-unquote, a diplomatic path back to compliance with the nuclear agreement, even if it means negotiating a, a new agreement. Hmm. And there is reason to think that Biden is probably a little bit closer to the Israeli way of thinking about what a good agreement would look like than the Obama administration. So it could well be, and I have talked to Israelis who are a little bit frustrated that this assassination uh, may be complicating things for a guy who might be okay on Iran as far as Israel is concerned. I mean, he certainly won't be like Trump, but he could bring about a renegotiated Iran deal that could be closer to something that Israel could live with. So we talked about what position this puts 
Israel in. And we talked about what position this puts the U.S. in, the Trump administration, and the upcoming Biden administration. But I'm curious how this will affect Iran going forward, both in terms of the government and the people there, especially if they are at this point of seeing potentially a little bit more hope in dealing with a more conciliatory Biden administration and what this attack does to that hope. Well, uh, I mean, Iran is a country enduring multiple crises right now. The pandemic has hit them extremely hard. They've had more than 45,000 fatalities. The economy which was already in desperate situation, is really in ruins right now. They've had public protest even before any of this began. There's a lot of discontent among the Iranians towards their government. I don't think that the killing of this particular scientist is, you know, going to be the final blow. But it does represent one more turn of the vice on a regime that's trying to resist increasingly enraged hardliners who want to see, um, you know, they there were calls to drop missiles on Haifa, the coastal city in northern Israel, from some hardline publications. And the moderates in the regime are trying to hang on at this moment to see what might change with a new administration in Washington. And I think what we can all do is just hope that they have the wherewithal to resist the calls to react in a big way and see if, in fact, from this sort of maximum pressure moment, something could emerge other than escalation. And that's going to be the challenge for all parties involved, a willingness to do something uh, different to change the trajectory here. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. So we're here in the crowd at Young and Dead Nest. Uh, a lot of noise, there's a generator going, not sure why. We got a variety of signs, uh, evolution or revolution. That is Emily Rahala. She covers foreign affairs for The Post. And recently, she's gotten really interested in the QAnon conspiracy theory and the way that it seems to be spreading around the world. Earlier this fall, I was back in my hometown of Toronto, And I heard that there was going to be a quote-unquote anti-lockdown protest. And I had already been following QAnon and its global spread for a little while. So I thought, I'm here. I should probably go check it out. You're here today. What you're doing here with your people is important. This is your new family. Right here, right now. Sorry to bother you guys. I noticed you have a Pizzagate sign. I'm a reporter for the Washington Post. Rise up! 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 Rise up!
So I just got back in my car. Um, that was really interesting. Even though there were signs of Q all over the rally, uh, nobody would talk to me about it. People who would talk to me said, oh no, I don't know anything about that, uh, except that they're getting censored. So clearly there's some hesitancy to actually talk about Q, but uh, signs of its influence everywhere at this rally in Toronto. Just to back up for a sec, I think it's helpful for people who don't live in the deep, dark, scary corners of the internet to get a sense of what actually QAnon is, what this movement is all about, and some of their central beliefs. Sure. So QAnon is essentially a pro-Trump conspiracy theory. Some call it a network of conspiracy or a collective delusion. But at the heart of it is the idea that President Trump is waging a secret campaign against a network of satanic pedophiles with links to, you know, the quote-unquote deep state. That's the central idea, but over the last few years, it's developed all sorts of peripheral theories and associated conspiracies. The sort of main figure or prophet of this movement is an anonymous message board poster who goes by Q. And this person, Q, person or people, we're not sure, posts uh, in message boards uh, very sort of strange clues about what's happening in the world. And the sort of common thread that unites them is that there's a big battle going on and eventually, you know, lightness is going to triumph over dark and the deep state will be vanquished. And Emily, just to be clear, I mean, all the parts of this QAnon theory, there is no evidence to suggest that it's true, correct? That's right. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest that any of this is correct. But what makes it powerful is that it builds off themes and nuggets that are just real enough. In the middle of the pandemic, people are nervous about the coronavirus. It plays off that fear. There's a lot of buildup to the election. It plays off that fear. But no, at the heart of this whole movement and all the movements that it spawned is essentially a lie. QAnon is one of those things where I feel like I don't really understand it. And then I ask people to explain it to me and I finish also not understanding it because it sounds so absurd. But one thing about what I know about the QAnon movement, or at least what I assumed, is that it was an American thing. It was about Trump and also Hillary Clinton and her emails and Obama and just like kind of a conspiracy theory about American politics. So so what what is happening in terms of QAnon's influence globally? That's what really drew me to this story. The 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 heart of the theory itself sounds sort of quintessentially or almost comically American. You know, it's all about President Trump. There's all sorts of pro-American memes, pro-Trump memes, lots of waving flags and bald eagles. The only people brave enough to vote out this corrupt establishment is you, the American people. Our great civilization has come upon a moment of reckoning. But at its core... It's really about something much older. It draws on really ancient anti-Semitic themes of battles between 
good and evil, of secretive cabals and saviors. So even though this specific conspiracy is about Trump and emerged from the hyper-partisan pro-Trump media ecosystem in the United States, it's had appeal elsewhere. So where is QAnon popping up around the world and with what kinds of theories? One researcher that I talked to traced QAnon to more than 70 countries. QAnon has been around since 2017, and it's been international since 2017. I interviewed Mark andre Argentino. He's a PhD student at Concordia University in Montreal. And he's doing a lot of research on QAnon, specifically its global reach. We saw the Yellow Vest movement act as a, as a way to bring QAnon to Canada, France, to UK. Brexit played a role in bringing it into UK. The German election in the AFD Five Star Party brought it to Italy. So we've seen it move around. But what's really happened is that the pandemic has had an exponential growth impact on QAnon. In some places, that's a major organized movement. In Germany, QAnon is particularly active. In other places, that might just be a digital community of people posting QAnon narratives and themes. But it's really everywhere. So QAnon acts as this master narrative to provide answers to complex events and problems, such as a pandemic or economic uncertainty, political polarization, war, child abuse. So this it's, it's a worldview that's characterized by a sharp distinction between the realms of good and evil. And that is something that is not limited by geographical boundaries, especially during a global pandemic. Everyone has suffered because of the pandemic, and QAnon acts as this master narrative to explain why this is happening to them in different countries. And what are the kinds of theories that are disseminated by QAnon followers outside of the U.S.? That's what's so interesting to me. The core idea that President Trump was waging a secret battle against this satanic cabal of pedophiles has proven surprisingly adaptable. And what we see is that QAnon communities and QAnon-inspired communities all around the world take that central narrative and they adapt it. So in some sort of branches of this movement, people are, are thinking of it really literally. In, in one case, German supporters of QAnon were, you know, cheering because they believed Trump was coming to literally liberate their country. So in Brazil, Bolsonaro is cast as the savior, either alongside or instead of Trump. And in Canada, the American deep state is replaced with the quote unquote Canadian deep state. And a lot of people at you know, anti-lockdown or QAnon-inspired rallies in Canada treat Trudeau as the great evil cabal and part of the deep state. So it's taking these core themes and applying them in all different contexts around the world. And it's really given the movement a lot of resilience. In the, the weeks and months that I was following it, I saw it pop up on Instagram, on Facebook. No question about it, children are sold on social media platforms, on websites and so forth. So I'm glad people are at least waking up to it, especially right now. This war, this spiritual war that we're in, it's ups and downs, we're gonna be in it. <laughs> it's just a mask, you guys. Don't be a jerk. It's for the greater good. In four months, the U.S. was transformed into an obedient socialist country. Government dictated what events are acceptable to attend. Violent protests that instill fear are okay. But church services, family funerals, and patriotic celebrations are dangerous. <laughs> and then, of course, in the really sort of far-right extremist platforms uh, where it's proliferated. And do we 
know what kind of people this movement is appealing to? The movement has a lot of different branches and it has found certainly a lot of popularity, for instance, on the German extreme right among neo-Nazi groups and other far-right communities. Elsewhere, it's gained traction among groups like, you know, yoga moms and Instagram influencers where there have been rallies to quote-unquote save the children that were inspired by QAnon themes, but were not, in fact, legitimate child welfare work. So it, it looks different in different places, but it's all based on the same central lie. And what platforms are we seeing these conspiracy theories disseminated on? In the beginning, QAnon was really something that was festering in particular on U.S.-based message boards, of course, with users from around the world. But we've really seen it spread. So when I was tracking QAnon's global spread, I was looking on uh, messaging services like Telegram, which is particularly popular with uh, QAnon followers in Europe. New platforms that are popular on the far right, like Parler, have just a ton of QAnon content. Um, it was very popular on Facebook and Instagram, but recent sort of efforts to take down conspiratorial and other damaging content have slowed its spread on the, you know, quote unquote mainstream. I'm curious about what could or will change now that Trump lost the election. I've heard stories in the U.S. of people who have started to lose faith in QAnon, even though at least two QAnon supporters were actually elected to Congress. But but I wonder, in a world where President Trump isn't president, and if he's at the center of the genesis of this conspiracy theory, how will that affect this movement worldwide? I think this movement has a lot of resilience. And the reason is that conspiracy theories tend to make these broad, sweeping predictions. And when those predictions don't come true, when the world doesn't end or President Trump is not elected, they adapt. There's a new reason why that didn't happen. The deep state is to blame. And it, it can actually reinforce people's views and reinforce their belief in the conspiracy. It doesn't really impact whether the movement will exist. Again, that's Marc-Andre Argentino from Concordia University. QAnon is going to simply continue to stay and remain and will just continue to grow as it has been over the last little bit because they have an environment that'll sustain that. So in the case of the election, we see a flood of information on QAnon channels about, you know, false allegations of election fraud, the idea that this was a big plot. What I think will happen is that QAnon will endure, but it will look different going forward. So in Canada, perhaps that it morphs into the anti-lockdown movement. Across Europe, it again becomes about anti-vaccine conspiracy. You know, maybe in Australia, it's something else. Each community that is already out there and living and breathing in other countries will take the themes that are interesting to them and apply them to their local context. And I think we'll see the, the core of this endure, particularly as the pandemic rages on. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post.
one more thing from reporter Kelsey Abels about the people who have struggled with the effects of COVID for a long time. Early on in the pandemic, a certain narrative of the illness was established that I think a lot of people have held on to, which is that, you know, you get sick. Often it's for about two weeks. Two weeks go by and then you come out of it and you're okay. But over time, I think that it's shown that that is actually not always the case. A lot of times, weeks, months out, people are still struggling with symptoms. And a lot of these people didn't even have the most severe cases of coronavirus. A lot of them are young in their 30s and 40s and finding themselves months out still dealing with it. I'm Shamir Smith. I'm 38 years old. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. I am a middle school teacher, a job that I love. Unfortunately, I had to stop doing it in March of um, 2020 because I was uh, I contracted COVID. She found herself just like quickly getting really, really sick and just going from having a sore throat to feeling like total fatigue to GI issues to uh, having brain fog. And she went to the doctor and she didn't feel like she was being helped. She felt like she kept being sent home. She, in her words, she put it that she felt like she was being sent home to die. I thought I was going to die in April. People who have found that, you know, weeks, months later, they're still suffering with symptoms have coined the term long haulers for themselves. People struggle with shortness of breath, standing up and feeling winded or having their heart rate spike. So heart palpitations are really common. Feeling like, you know, I just walked to the bathroom and it feels like I went for a run. People are struggling with brain fog. So having difficulty remembering names or piecing words together. There's a term called the COVID buzz or COVID fizz, which is this kind of internal tremor. One long hauler described it to me as feeling like every cell in her body was vibrating. My body, it won't stop shaking. It's very shaky. It's very unsteady. I can't keep my balance when I'm very fatigued. Doctors really don't have many answers for them. And in a lot of cases, they're being told that the things that they're experiencing are in their heads. They're being asked, do you have any anxiety about the pandemic? Is that why you're feeling this way? So I think that that's kind of the starting point. And, you know, there's very few answers that doctors can provide. And a lot of people feel like they've been kind of gaslit. Now, all of a sudden, in the last six months, I've argued with more doctors. I've fought with more hospital leadership. You know, I've had to get p other people involved more than I, I in, in a way that I've never had before. There's been increased media attention recently to that. So a lot of long haulers have seen segments on local news or seen people talking on Facebook about the duration of their symptoms. And through that, they've become familiar with this long haulers term and found their way to different support groups online that have popped up around people who are still struggling with this illness. It speaks to just how much we do not know about this virus. Kelsey Abels is a reporter and editorial aide for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. It is December 1st, basically the first day of the last month of this godforsaken year. So it's a great time to try out a digital subscription to The Washington Post. You can get a whole month of access to Post Journalism for just $1. Just think about it as one good thing in this sea of awfulness. Check it out at postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 